Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the privilege we've had to be reminded of everything we looked at in the Gospel of Luke. That we had the privilege of walking through all of these great and powerful stories and accounts that remind us of the glory of Jesus, His authority over the world. I thank you that we can now be in your word and to be confronted with Jesus. And Lord, may that authority lift our hearts. May it cause us with humility to say thank you for the forgiveness and to, and to thank you that we are here because of your mercy and grace. None of us deserve anything we've received. And I pray, God, that we would just unite together as you're redeemed in love for you and in love for others and just to revel in your authority. Thank you for the privilege we've had to worship you in song and may your word wash over us this morning and just cause us to love Christ more. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, I would ask you to return in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 20 is where we are. We left off. We are studying the Gospel of Luke. And uh, in these last chapters, Luke spends a lot of time leading us up to the cross. As I was studying this passage this week, I actually thought about something. When I was a kid, uh, I watched this movie with my parents called Dr. Zhivago. Okay? And uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you the ending of the movie. It was done in 1965. So I feel okay spoiling the end of it. But if today you woke up and you said, today's the day I'm finally going to watch Dr. Zhivago... You might want to plug your ears, because I'm going to give you the ending. Okay, This movie, you know, 50 years ago, came out, and it tells the story of this doctor in, in uh, Russia, and you know, right before World War, it begins in World War I, and, and he goes through the whole fighting in the war, and then the communist revolution, and, and the guy gets separated from his love. And he goes through all these horrible experiences, this just, you know, gut-wrenching experiences, he's and, you know, from the gulag to the Siberian winters to all this intense stuff that he goes through. And kind of an underlying theme of the movie, as I remember this as a kid, was whether or not he'd get back to his love. He got separated from his love, and is he ever going to get back? And so at the very end of the movie, he's in the city, and he gets on a little commuter kind of train, trolley thing. And, and he gets on this train, and as he's on the train, he sees walking down the street his love. You're like, all right, he's going to get reunited. So he tries to get off the train, but he can't get off. All these people are coming on, and he's stuck on the train. It's like a dream. You know, you're trying to get somewhere, and you can't get there. It's like, so, that, so he tries hard he can. He can't, can't get off. So, and, then, and then the train's driving by, and, and his love is like right there, and he's pounding on the window. Hey, I'm right here. Right? He's been like gone through this harrowing experience. As the viewer, you've gone through like two hours of watching this guy in Siberian winters, you know, and he's like just inches away from her. He's pounding on the window, and then the train stops, and he finally gets off the train, but she's walked ahead. She's about 200 yards ahead of him, and he's about ready to call out to her. Oh, he drops dead of a heart attack right there on the spot. Just dies. And I'm watching the movie going, Mom and Dad, this is a horrible movie. You put me through two and a half hours of Siberian winters. To have the guy die. I'm like, why would anyone want to watch this kind of movie? Right? It was just horrible. 
And I thought, and I remember saying to my parents, I thought this was a love story. They're like, oh no, no, it's a Russian thing. You know? <laughs> it's like, it's just, you know, harsh winters and death. You know, it's like. And I remember, in fact, to this day, I have never watched that film. Again, I was so upset by the ending because he just, boop, he dies, dies right there. Now, the reason why I was upset, I was thinking about this week because I was thinking, I thought the way the movie began that, you know, okay, he's separated by his love, he's going to go through all It'd just be like the classic Hollywood movie, right? He's separated by his love, but, but no Siberian winter, no Russian gulag, no communist takeover will keep the man from his love, right? I thought that would be like the trailer. And in reality, yeah, the harsh winter, the war, and communist takeover gave the guy a heart attack, and he died. It was more real life than it necessarily was kind of the Hollywood fantasy. And the reason why I thought about this week is I was thinking that in life, we kind of go through life with certain assumptions about life, certain assumptions about reality, certain assumptions about the way we think things should be, and then when you're confronted with how things really are, you end up getting hurt or discouraged or frustrated. And I thought about that this week because as we're studying the life of Jesus here in Luke 20, and as we're, we're seeing him on this final week before the cross, and Luke spends so much time, you know, so many chapters just unpacking the life of Jesus before the cross, we, we begin to hear his words. And, and when we see the interaction between Jesus and the people and Jesus and the religious leaders, we're challenged to something. We are challenged to, to understand how to understand the world. In these moments and in these, these dialogues and in these interactions, there's more going on here than Jesus just schooling these people. There's more going on here than Jesus just saying, oh, you think you're going to have a battle of the wits with me? I'll show you. Actually, what Jesus is doing is he is explaining the world and how to view the world, how to understand the world how to process it. Last week, we looked at this reality that Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord of the vineyard. We're the tenants. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the Lord. You, you can stand in your life at this moment in time, and, and you can look at the past and say, wasn't that the glory days? And I resist all change. I'm going to try to live back here in the past. Or you could stand in the present and say, no one mess with my box. I need everything to stay exactly as it is. Or I could stand in the present, look at the future, and say, oh, Man, it would be so much better if this would happen or if that would happen or if I could be here or I could be there. And all of those things are, are the realities of us trying to be the Lord. We want to run the, the vineyard. We want to say, this is how it's supposed to be. And if it doesn't happen this way, then uh, I'll be upset. I'll be angry. I'll be mad. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the vineyard. You're the tenant. And he looked, we looked at that this week. Well, this week it continues on. And last week we kind of saw what what, what is kind of a, in, endemic in a bad worldview of not recognizing Jesus as, as the Lord. And, and this week in the interaction, we're going to learn a little bit more about how to view the world. We're going to learn a little bit more about how to view life. We're going to learn a little bit more about how to see things through the lens of Christ as Lord. And in fact, what we're going to get is a worldview we're going to get a worldview. We're going to get a way of understanding life that is so clear 
that if you could actually grab these, this, what Jesus says in this passage and really say, I am going to apply this to my life starting right now, I, I really truly believe that you will be walking in a satisfied manner. I know in my personal life this week, as I faced even little mini challenges, as I reflected on this passage and thought about this passage and, 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 and engaged it, I found myself in peace. And the peace didn't come because the problems went away. The peace didn't come because everything was answered and everybody did everything exactly the way I wanted them to do. The peace came because I became satisfied in who Christ is. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he said to the people, if only you knew the things that make for peace. He's the one that makes peace. Everyone around you can do exactly what you want, but but you still won't have peace. Peace comes when you're satisfied in Jesus. And we're going to see all of this today. In fact, in this interchange between Jesus and and the religious leaders, Jesus unfolds what I want to call the three pillars of human existence. You want to exist in this world, you want to live in this world, and you want to be able to endure all the chaos, change, craziness, and wackiness and sinfulness of this world that we all got to live in. You'll anchor your life on these three pillars. They're right there in the outline in your bulletin. These are really simple but incredibly profound. The three pillars are this, that you have been created in the image of God. You've been created for an eternity with God. And you've been created to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. In the interchange between Jesus and these leaders, this is what he's telling them. You've been created in the image of God. Therefore, there's a certain response that should come from that. You've been created for eternity with God. Therefore, do not just get caught up in the moment and live only for the moment. You've been created to serve Jesus as Lord. Not just as somebody in your life who just does good things for you along the way and covers the areas that you can't cover. But he's the Lord. And we've been created then to reject all shallow forms of religion to embrace him as our Lord. We're going to see that today. And and what I hope that happens as you go through this is that you will really be touched by this. And that wherever you're at in your life, that you would begin to start looking for something deeper than finding satisfaction in anything other than Jesus. That you would that you'd be driven to look for satisfaction elsewhere. Or not look for satisfaction elsewhere, but in Christ alone. So let's jump into it here. Let's look at the first point here. Would you follow along as I read verses 19 and 20? It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority, the jurisdiction of the governor. Okay, so Jesus told the parable of the tenants, and he says, okay, you know, the, the, the master of the vineyard sent his servants, and, 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 and the tenants killed the servants because they wanted to run the vineyard, and the reality is that the owner of the vineyard is going to take the vineyard away from them. They knew exactly what he was talking about when he told that parable. We studied it last week. They knew they were talking about Israel. They knew they were talking about the kingdom of God. He knew that he was basically saying, God is going to reject you because you have rejected me. They knew exactly what he was saying. 
And they were mad. And the leaders wanted to kill them, but they were people pleasers. The people still loved Jesus, and so they didn't want to stand in such a way that the people would, uh, would go against them. And so they had a meeting, and they said, what are we going to do? How are we going to get rid of this guy? And they said, hey, we got a great idea. We'll come up with this plan, and the plan is this. We'll send some people out to pretend like they really love Jesus, right? And they'll just be really nice to him and say all these nice things to him. And then we'll ask him a trick question. We'll ask him a question that puts him between a rock and a hard place, right? We're going to ask him one of those, you know, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it kind of questions, right? The ones that all the young philosophy students always come up and ask you that question, you know, can God do this, right? Because if you say no, then he's not God. He's not all powerful. If you say yes, then there's something more powerful than him, right? Gotcha. Trapped. Now, I've used that illustration, well, dozen times or so over the past years, and I never answer the question, right? And afterwards, no one hears anything from the sermon from this point forward because they all come and say, why didn't you answer that question, right? Am I right? You guys know who you are. We're going to come up if I don't answer it. So I'm going to answer it now, right? You want to answer the question, could God create a rock so big? This is just a freebie. Okay, so stop the clock. I'm borrowing five minutes off my sermon here. Okay, the answer to that question is simply this. No. Okay, so... <laughs> right? God will never work outside of his nature. God can't sin. God can't do evil. And God would never make something that's more powerful than him because he's all glorious and holy and he would never do something to outshine it. He can't outshine his own glory. That's how great he is. There's your answer. Okay, so now they're trying to get him with one of those kind of questions because here's what they want to do. If they could trap him to saying something bad against Rome, then the Roman authorities could arrest him, and then they could say, well, we don't know what happened. It was just the Romans, right? They, they could still remain people pleasers. Psychological terms, we call this passive-aggressive, right? We're going to try to deal with this in such a way that, uh, that we'll let someone else take care of it. So notice what happens, verse 21. So they ask him. I mean, this is so cheesy, too. Listen to these guys. Teacher... We know that you speak and teach rightly. Ugh. Right? You know, Jesus knows their hearts. It is so good that he is all-powerful that he can even control his wrath. Right? Because you imagine somebody coming up, you know they are being disingenuous, and you could, like, just say, die, and they could die right there. Right? <laughs> like, if you had that power, imagine, I'm glad we don't. But, like, you know, because he has the ability just to go, die, boom. They would die. Like, so they're up there just dripping, they're oozing. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. What are they trying? Why are they, They're pulling them in this way. Like, we know that you'll do what's right no matter what. Because right? we're going to ask you this question, and we know that if you have to go against Rome, you have the courage to do it. Right? That's kind of how they're setting them up. You show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. Now, a lot of people think that this is just about paying taxes, but it's really not just about paying taxes. We've got to know a little bit. You notice they say tribute, paying tribute to Caesar. Once a year, there was a tax that was given to Caesar. It was a special tax. You would call it an allegiance tax. This was a tax in which you went to Caesar and you gave a denarii. Everyone gave a denarii, a day's wages, to Caesar. And by giving that, they were basically saying, we pledge our allegiance to you. 
You are everything. Okay? It, it, it was the ultimate moment of pledging allegiance to Caesar, not just as their king, but he liked to think of himself as their god. So he's asking for worship by the giving of this thing. This is unique. This is harder for us to comprehend here in the United States because when our country was founded, from the very beginning, we said we will not give allegiance to a king or a president. Do you ever wonder why, you know, beginning of school, especially those of us who are a little older, we used to begin each day with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I don't think they do that anymore. But, but why did we do that? Well, you know, in the founding of our country, we said, well, listen, we're not pledging allegiance to a king or a sovereign, but our allegiance is to our Constitution. And the flag is the symbol of our Constitution. And so we, by pledging allegiance to a flag, we're basically saying we're pledging allegiance to the, the foundational principles that are outlined in our government. So from our perspective, we don't really, when we read through this, sometimes we, we forget that there are other countries, the requirement was that you pledged allegiance to your sovereign, to your king. And you say to that king, I believe you are everything to me. And so when they're asking Jesus this question, they're not just saying, are we, should we pay our taxes or not? They're saying, listen, should we pay tribute to this guy? Because when we give that denarii, you know what we're saying when we give that denarii? We're saying Caesar is God. Is that right? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? That is a very good question. I mean, think about it. If Jesus answers this question, yes, pay tribute to Caesar, what you are saying at that moment is that there's another God above God. Okay, so he's now going to undercut his entire standing as, a, as, as, as calling himself the Messiah because now he's acknowledged another God above God. And if he says, no, we don't, it's wrong to honor Caesar as God, there's only one Lord, then they'll run over to the Romans and say, hey, he doesn't think Caesar's king. And the Romans will come in and arrest them. Great question. At least they think it's a great question, right? They think it's a great question. So Jesus is now going to answer this. Because you remember, the issue here is worship. The issue here is worship. Is it wrong to give money knowing that that money is going to be used and you are aligning yourself with saying, Caesar is God? On the denarii itself, it says, Caesar is God. Do you want to do that? Okay, let's look how Jesus answers the question. Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. Right? He knew. And, you know, when I read that again, I, I'm still amazed at the patience of Jesus. I mean, you know, wow. That is incredible, incredible amount of control. Incredible amount of control. Right? He, he does not use his power and his wrath to absolutely just dominate everybody, to get him to do what he wants. All of his power was used to carry out the will of the Father, which was to redeem people. It's incredible to think about it. This is a moment for him to harness his wrath among these people who are lying and trying to trick him. And to instead use that to redeem people. It's powerful. So he perceives the craftiness. So what does he do? Verse 24. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? 
They said Caesar's, right? So get out the coin. Now, the, the actual literal question is, whose image does the coin bear? That would be a literal translation. I want you to know that because it's going to become important later as this thing unfolds. Whose image does it bear? Caesar's image. Okay. Now, that's important. Store that. Let's keep going now. Pick up the rest of this. Verse 25, And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Okay, now, we got to really catch this statement here. The tribute to Caesar was saying, we believe you're God. And he says, listen, pull out the coin. Whose face does, is on this coin? Well, Caesar's face is, right. The coin bears the image of Caesar, right? Yes. Who made the coin? Caesar did. Where did it come from? Caesar's mint. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. Okay. Then give it back to him. It's his coin. Just give it to him. To render means to give back. And that's important. Okay? Because notice the fullness. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and, implied in the Greek, render to God the things that are God's. Okay. The implication is this. I believe that this is, this is an, an accurate way to translate this. I'm going to add some words to the text, but I think this is what the text is saying. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Then, then give it back to him. Who bears the image of God? Where's the image of God found? Man in us. Then give yourself to God. Okay? You see, the point is this. The coin is just a coin. And he stamped his image on it. You have been stamped in the image of God. Give, render yourself back to God. You belong to him. See, to be created in the image of God means you belong to God. That's the key to the text. You belong to him. Now, you see, if you go through life and you think, I don't really belong to God, I belong to myself, then the issue is always going to be about money and things like that. Should I pay my taxes? Should I not pay my taxes? If I pay my taxes and the government uses it for bad things, is that wrong? Blah, 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 blah. Right? Because you see, I don't really see myself as being devoted to God. It's just about money. It's about temporal stuff. And Jesus is saying, you're getting it all wrong. You belong to God. Caesar will put his face on a bunch of coins. If he puts his face on 50 coins, and give him 50 coins. It's irrelevant. What is relevant is you belong to God. You've got to push your worldview deeper. That's what he's saying. Push it deeper. You bear the image of God, therefore you belong to God. Render yourself, return to the owner what is rightfully his. In fact, that would be the most literal definition of the word render. To return to the owner what is rightfully his. Caesar made the coin, give him his coin back. God made your life, give your life to him. At this moment, by the way, you can see that Jesus neither undid submission to authority and never did he undo submission to God as ultimate king, right? So, so their whole 
world they tried to create was just destroyed. But the point is very deeper than that. It's acknowledging the fact that since I have been created in the image of God, I belong to him. So therefore, when I get up each day, the focus of my life should not be, God, what do I need you to bless in my life today? God, this is my agenda for the day. This is my agenda for my life. This is my agenda for everything. This is what I have. This is my plan, my plan, my plan, right? Which is what we do. You wake up, boom, you are rushed with everything you feel you need in life. And he's saying, listen, render yourself back to God. You get up every day and say, God, what is your plan for today? I'm rendering my life back to its owner. You made me, I belong to you. To be created in the image of God means that you belong to God. And that's a good place to be because he is so merciful. Just even here in this text, you can see how patient he is. Right? You have yelled at people for a lot less than what these guys have done, right? You've gotten mad at people for a lot less sins than what these guys are doing here, right? I mean, to be in his hands is a great place to be. He is so patient and so merciful. So notice what happens in verse 26. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said, (laughs) But marveling at his answer, they became silent, right? It's, it's like, duh, right? I mean, that's what it was. Like, we cannot do anything. We don't even know what to say. He's both submitting to authority and the earthly authority, and he's submitting to God, and somehow the two aren't in contradiction that we thought they were. Incredible moment. It worked. So to be created in the image of God is the first worldview that I pull from this text, the first basis to say, wait a minute, I belong to God. He made me. Being in his image means I render to God, I return back to God what is rightfully his, my life. That's a great way to start your day. God, I belong to you today. And I want to live my life. I want to render back to you what belongs to you. Now, there's a second worldview here. The second worldview now moves into the fact that we were created for eternity with God. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. You know, after uh, the Jews returned back to the land, there were all kinds of sects and divisions that, that broke out in, uh, in, in Israel. You had the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Ascends, a bunch of different groups, subgroups. One particular group of these Sadducees, they, they, were, uh, they didn't believe in the supernatural I like to say it this way, that the Pharisees added to the Bible all their laws. The Sadducees took away. They were more involved in politics, living for the moment, living for the here and now. They didn't hold to any of the oral traditions, anything like that. They were just in the moment. That's what they lived for. Their whole focus of life was politics, right kind of politics. You know, uh, they weren't thinking of the afterlife, and he, Luke even tells us they denied there's a resurrection. When you die, just annihilationism, that's it. All there is is the here and now. They live for the moment. So this is a good group of people to learn a lesson from. Because now we're going to have Jesus deal with these people who have a here and now focus. They're going to try their hands, right? The Pharisees have tried for years, and they couldn't do away with them. The priests and the elders and all them have just tried, and Jesus has schooled them. Now... The Sadducees are going to come up. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to catch Jesus in one of these, like, the Bible's illogical moments, right? If you really follow the Bible, take it literally, it doesn't make sense. That's what they're going to do. They're going to try to attack him this way. And his teaching of the resurrection, because Jesus taught about the resurrection. So notice what they say, verse 28. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... 
having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died in the resurrection, which they don't believe. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So I'm sure it's like one of the Sadducee arguments. You got this law that says this. And so what do you do if you got a woman who married a real, into a bad gene pool? Right? I mean, this is a horrible gene pool. No children, they keep dying. You know, it's like she probably went, Dad, why did you arrange that marriage? You know? My sister married into that family. She's got 50 kids over here. I got nothing, right? You know, they keep dying on me, right? So, so the, but, but of course, they're just making up this scenario. And, and basically, they're saying, you see, this can't be true because biblically, it doesn't make sense. Because it is true that, you know, if a, if a, if a woman marries a guy and, and, and the law would say that if he died and they didn't have children, then she has to marry the brother if the brother's not married. And, the, and because... Because that family line, that son's line needs to continue on. So the first son that would be born of that marriage would belong to the brother, not to the one who married the widow. And then if he dies and there's no children, and it's going to keep moving down. It's just what's going to happen. So if that's what the law says, then when they go to heaven, it's going to be really creepy. Right? This isn't going to work. So what do we do? Who does she belong to? Okay, verse 34. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, they don't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus is going to show them that they're wrong in this view. But first thing he says is, listen, you have got to understand something. You guys only live in the moment, and so when you read the Bible, you only see the moment. So you see people getting married, and you think that's it. All that matters is marriage. When you define marriage, you only define it in the constructs of these hundred years that, that somebody could live on this planet. And you're missing that God created this moment in light of all of eternity. And his ultimate end isn't this moment. His ultimate end is eternity. And so marriage as it exists today will not be the way it is in heaven. There will be marriage in heaven, but it's going to be completely different. How does marriage exist today? Marriage exists today, right? We see that, that God created man and woman in his image, so man, man and woman reflect the image of God. And then he says this, he says, but you know what? I, I created marriage for basically two things to happen on this side of heaven, that man wouldn't be alone, it'd be companionship, and that they'd have children. The children would come from this. So the population would occur. Okay, big picture worldview. You know, you're not alone. Children. But he said, but when you get to heaven, you're not going to need that companionship in that way, and we're not going to need babies. So therefore, marriage changes. You become like the angels. And so therefore, you're not having that kind of relationship that you're having here on earth. And so what he's saying is, because you guys have no eternity in view, all you see is the moment. Now, what does this mean? Let's just take a moment and just unpack this, because people, there's, I think there's three different reactions you have when you read something like that. 
Uh, one reaction that you could have is if you're a single person, you might say, phew, okay? <laughs> because the reality is that, that marriage isn't the end all. God's final intended goal for your satisfaction was not that you get married on this end of heaven, but that you would be in union with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And that is the eternal marriage. His children are the bride of Christ. And that bride of Christ will be with him forever, and there will be complete satisfaction. So if you're not married, it's good news. Because the world isn't defined by this temporal 80, 90 years you, Lord willing, might live on this planet. Think with eternity in view. If you're in a rough marriage, you might go, whoo, praise God, right? Because the end of life isn't just what happens here. And if you just get so caught up in the moment, well, God did not design your spouse to give you ultimate fulfillment. So we can shed that idol and say, you know what, I just want it all in Jesus. I just want it all in Christ. Now, maybe some of you are going, this is really depressing. I don't want to leave my spouse. Like, I love them. I'm, having a, I'm in a great marriage. And I would say this, God only adds blessing. He doesn't take them away. So think about this. If you're in one of the scenarios where you read this and you go, that's not encouraging to me. <laughs> my response would be to use this. Say this. <clears throat> when you were single, you were like lonely and pining for somebody, right? And then you meet somebody, you go, oh, I met somebody. This is so cool. Right? But that wasn't enough. It wasn't like when you met them, you said, oh, I wait, I, I want to go back to when I was pining for somebody. Right? So then you meet someone, and then, and then you get to know them, and maybe you start courting or dating, and, and you're like, oh, that's really cool. So you don't want to go back to say, oh, let's just go back to when we were just kind of flirting. Okay? And then you say, okay, then you get engaged. You finally get engaged. Well, it isn't like you go back and say, well, let's just go back, right? Because right? you're saying, I want to get engaged, but I want to get married. I want to keep moving forward. And then when you get married, you're like, whoo, right? And then somebody comes with all their dating drama, and you're like, I'm so glad I'm out of that, right? <laughs> I don't want that dating drama. And you're so happy about that. And you're not saying, let's go back. When you get to heaven, and you are fulfilled in Christ, I guarantee you Heather will not be saying, I just want to go back to when Steve was my husband. She's not going to say that. And I'm, not, and I'm going to be okay with that. Okay? I'm going to say, yeah, you don't want that. That's like going back to Dayton. You don't want that. Jesus is everything. This is going to be great. You see, marriage is going to find its fulfillment in Christ. That's what he's saying. If you're not thinking through the lens that you've been created for eternity, then you're going to be trapped in the chaos of the moment. Right? You'll be trapped in it. If you can't press through to eternity, then all there is is here and now. And here and now is Dr. Shivago. <laughs> Long Russian winters and death. Right? Am I right? Isn't that true? That's the here and now. Unless we can press through that and see Jesus. He's everything. He's the sum total. And so don't define the sum total of God's blessing in your life only by the box of here and now but press through to where Christ is everything. He's all in all. That's the hope. This is what he's saying. Guys, you've missed the whole point. You've been created for eternity of you, but you don't believe in the eternity. You don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And because of that, you've missed it. You've missed it. And so what does he do? 
He now wants to show them that there is a resurrection. So look at verse 37. He says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. And he's talking about Exodus 3 there. Where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live in him. Now he's saying, guys, you know, you're over here quoting the law at me, Moses. Okay, let me throw a little Moses back at you. That's what he's saying. Now you're telling me this law over here, law of Moses. I'm going to throw a little Moses back at you. When Moses stand before the burning bush, how did God define himself? He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God. I am their God. And if he is their God, present tense, then they must be alive. Duh. Right? Got to be alive. There's a resurrection. You see, here's the point. You've been created with eternity in view. Every element of life is to be pressed through the lens of eternity. If you view your life only like a Sadducee, that there is no eternity, and I'm only caught up right now with the here and now, you're left with all kinds of quandaries in life. Because the world doesn't always add up. Things don't always make sense. Chaos happens, change happens, pain happens, people die, things break. It's bad. But if you press on through to say, wait a minute, this isn't all there is. And God is redeeming this moment and redeeming it and redeeming it and redeeming the pain and redeeming the the chaos and redeeming the change so that all of a sudden I can be brought to an eternity with him where Jesus is everything to me and I stand fully fulfilled in him and I will be his bride and he will be my husband. And it will be phenomenal. See, that's what he's saying. Guys, you've been created with eternity of you. If you miss that, you're going to miss a pillar of life. Okay, so our first point. You've been created in the image of God, so you render your life. You give back to him what he owns. The second point, when God made you and created you in his image, he created you with eternity in mind. So press through and begin to say, God, I believe that all of this is going to translate into glory. I believe all of this craziness is going to be used by you for your glory and your purposes and God let me not make an idol out of the moment let me focus on eternity and let that shape my present okay leads us to our third point the simple point at the end we've been created to serve the Lord Jesus Christ very simple point Jesus now is just going to ask them a question Okay, you guys got a question for me. By the way, obviously, I skipped over 39 and 40. They, they couldn't respond to him, right? You've spoken well, they said. You know, what else could they say, right? Because he's just, he showed them the truth. And now we move to the last point, created to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Okay, he's basically asking this question that they all understood. The Messiah was going to be the son of David. That was a term they used, son of David. So if you were talking to them and you would say the Messiah, you wouldn't say the Messiah, you might say he's the son of David. He's the offspring, the eternal one, the one, or the one that's going to rule on the throne. He's the son of David. So he says, now wait a minute. When you look at this psalm, Psalm 110, <clears throat> David's talking about the son of David, and what does David say? David actually calls him the Lord. 
So how in the world could he be a son when he is given the title Lord? Why would David call him Lord? Now, he doesn't answer the question. It's a rhetorical question. You see, here's what's happening. Jesus is, is, if you look at the whole flow of this chapter, he's coming and saying, I am the Lord of the vineyard. This is my vineyard. I'm the heir of it. I own the kingdom of God. You're going to try to kill me, but you're not going to take the vineyard away from me. I am the Lord. And you know what's happening here? Is that you are rebelling against my lordship. And when you talk about the Messiah, you've got to remember one thing, boys. He's the Lord. That's what he's saying. Psalm 110, David even calls him Lord. That's his whole point. It's just that simple. What does that mean? That means that we have been created to serve Jesus as Lord. We have not been created to say, Jesus, here are all my plans, bless them. We've been created to say, Jesus, I will walk in your path. And yeah, it might be a tough path, but I walk in it. Because I believe when I see it through the lens of eternity, I can say like Paul, it's momentary light affliction. It's momentary light affliction. I can, I can hold on to it. And to make sure they get the point, notice verse 45, Jesus instructs his disciples. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Right? Beware of these people <clears throat> who like to dress up in religious clothes. And they appear like they're very religious. Their heart, actually, is they hurt people. They take advantage of people. They take their money and resources and they destroy the homes of people they should be serving, right? Because they go in thinking, I'm the Lord and therefore you're going to serve my ends and I don't care. So they're taking money away from people who need money. They hurt people. They destroy people. And you think, beware of these people. You see, the issue of life is you've been created to serve Jesus as Lord. You have not been created to make yourself the Lord and then to shroud yourself with a religious shroud. Shroud yourself with religion. And he says, beware. That's a warning. Beware of that kind of deception. Beware because it's driven by pride. It's driven by arrogance. It's driven by status. You see, we've been created to serve Jesus as Lord, not religion. And not the, the arrogance that comes from religion. So, what does this mean? Let's wrap it up here. Three parts of the worldview. Three things I want you to remember. First one is this. Remember, you've been created in the image of God. You've got to remember that. And what matters most in this life is what you've been created for. God made you, and his purposes are the only place you're ever going to find satisfaction. And if you create satisfaction in some temporal sense of the world, you'll never find it. If you try to look for it there, it won't be there. You're only satisfied when you are walking in submission to the purposes for which God made you. So render back to God what he made. Give Caesar his coin and give God his life, your life. That's what he's saying, remember. And so the prayer then, I'll give you a prayer that you can pray. Prayer in all circumstances, every day, all the time. Pray this, God, what is my mission here and now? Today, in this circumstance, at this moment, in whatever chaos is going on, what do you want me to do here, God? 
What do you want me to do? Instead of, God, why is this situation on me? How can you change it? Why don't you make it better? Why don't we? Instead of just saying that, God, obviously I'm here. Obviously this is going on. What do you want me to do? I'm going to render back to you what belongs to you. You're in control. Second thing to remember. You've been created for eternity. The temptation, temptation of life is to make the here and now the center of your fulfillment. We can make all kinds of things an idol in our life. We can make our homes an idol. We can make our marriages an idol. We can make our children an idol. We can make this church an idol. We can make our finances an idol, our home, job, our money, our bank account. All these things are idols. And we say, I'm willing to give everything for, to find my satisfaction there. And you get it all, and you're just as equally empty when you get it all. Because people let you down, stuff breaks. doesn't work. I've been created for eternity. So the temporal serves the eternal purposes. And so what I want to do is I want to press through the temporal into the eternity and say, okay, here's my prayer then. How does my here and now serve eternity? God, it's a rough time right now. I don't like it. Okay, God, what is your eternal purposes for this right now? How does my here and now serve my eternity? And finally, third thing to remember. Simple. Jesus is Lord. We could add on to that, and we're not. Amen. Right? Hallelujah. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord right now. He's Lord all the time. He's the Lord. He's in control. So when we render back to God what is God, what we are saying is, Jesus, I will be the tenant, and you will be the master of the vineyard. And so my prayer then is Jesus, what is your agenda in this moment that I can serve? What is your agenda? I want to serve it. Rather than fighting it, rather than wallowing in self-pity and depression, God, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. I'll do it, God. Change my heart. Let me be satisfied in Jesus. You can see how this is really a worldview-changing reality. And the prayer of our life is to say, Jesus, give me a heart to submit to this. I'm done with the fighting. I'm done with the resisting. I'm done with it all. I'll fall upon the rock and be broken. Would you bow your head with me? Jesus, I thank you for your patience with us. We forget that we're created in your image and we begin to, to think you're created in our image. And we forget that, that, that you created us with eternity in view, that, that you had a, an eternal plan, not just a temporal plan for these 80 years on earth, but, but an eternal plan. And sometimes we forget and we walk around as if you're not the Lord, as if everything's out of control. So, Lord, I pray that we would wake up every day and say, I'm yours. I'm going to render back my life to you. God, I pray that we'd wake up every day saying, let me see how this moment can be redeemed in eternity. And even if I can't see it, Lord, I'll still hold on that it does. And let me walk through life saying, what is your agenda for me today? Not what is my agenda for the day. What is your agenda for me? And so, Lord, if it's something as trivial as a stoplight or traffic that's frustrating us or something as great 
as intense personal conflicts and problems. Wherever it falls in that spectrum, may we not find our satisfaction in ourselves or in some short-term resolution, but may Jesus be everything to us. And let us find our satisfaction in where this is headed, not to where it is right now. In Christ's name, amen.